You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Stephanie, Steve, thank you for being here with us today to talk about what the World Health Organization is now referring to as a pandemic. Uh, Angela Merkel today also said that she believes in Germany, 70% of Germany's population is going to be infected by COVID-19 coronavirus. Stephanie, what do you think the impact of COVID-19 is going to be on the global economy? The short answer to the question is we don't know. We know that it's bad. We don't know the magnitude of how bad it could get. And that introduces an element of uncertainty that is making the market reaction in particular that much worse. And so markets hate uncertainty. And this particular crisis presents uncertainty in three different areas. So one is just the path of the virus. So we know this is a novel coronavirus. We don't actually know exactly how it's transmitted, whether or not it will actually die down in the summertime, whether it could eventually resurge. And so there's the uncertainty about the virus itself. Then there's the uncertainty about the economic fallout. And that reflects both the response to the outbreak and the disparate responses that we've seen from the official sector, knowing that those responses actually have economic impacts themselves. And then there's the uncertainty around the policy response. And I I think some of what we've been seeing is some nervousness that that policy response has not been adequate to date. And on a global scale, that that policy response has not yet been adequately coordinated. Right. Steve, I want to bring you in on the policy coordination and the policy response. Stephanie just talked about how the market's responding to the uncertainty and the lack of uh, a coordinated response, lack of an adequate response. Where do you see that right now today? Well, a couple of things. One, the speed of the instability and shocks economically has, I think, really surprised people. It's certainly taken me by surprise on how fast the transmission of all of this. And it's actually ahead of the virus. And, and these different shocks that we've seen that are reactions to different elements that are accumulating, it's people are really very much on edge. They, this week, it seemed to me here in Washington that the attention had turned towards what's, what's going to be the measures for mitigating, slowing the, the economic damage and put, laying a basis for some kind of economic uh, recovery whether we can achieve a kind of bipartisan consensus that stretches across the executive and Congress is the is the big question mark right now. People are moving out of deniability to sort of see this. I mean, we were just talking to the leadership of one of the major airlines, one of the major American airlines earlier today, and there's been all of this reporting about the collapse of the airline industry. They're in shock. And they're, they're looking at this situation and saying, we're not going to get out of this for a long time. How are we going to get out of this? The pandemic has to be fixed to get out of it, but there's all these other things that we have to fix. And who's going to take the lead? Who's going to take the lead in doing this? Because we need to be thinking on a much bigger scale about what the solutions are going to be than we have up to now. Where The thinking that's gone on about both the pandemic and the economic 
measures that can be taken to try and soften the damage, they've been fairly modest in scale. They haven't been looking at this and thinking, we could be in a, in a prolonged economic global crisis of some sort for a year or two years. But Steve, you've been warning, you and others have clearly been warning businesses, governments about the dangers of a worldwide epidemic that or a pandemic that comes from flu. And has nobody been, is nobody prepared for this? I mean, this isn't, this is something you've been talking about for years. Well, those that are the best prepared have been Hong Kong and Singapore, countries that are micro states with autocratic governments and strong public health systems that were able to move very rapidly and very aggressively. The rest of us are subject to complacency, weak preparedness, underinvestment in our capacities slow and sluggish responses. We're not alone in that. It's, it's, a, it's a common problem. You have to believe, though, that there's going to be some form of recovery in the response and that we have to, first of all, define what is it, what is it that we think lies ahead before we start defining what we think the solutions are going to be. And we've been a little reluctant to think about how bad it might become up to now, because I think people have understandably harbored hope that this would be short-term and containable. And of course, the, the administration here has taken that view until very recently that we should think in those terms. Public health people have made the much starker argument, but it's also got blended in or obscured at times by the more optimistic. Early in this, I don't know, Stephanie, what you think, early in this crisis, the economists and the business sector were, were much more optimistic and conspicuously in contrast to the public health people. Yeah. I think that's over. Com completely, completely agree. And as you were speaking, I was just thinking about a clear indication of how the economic side kind of underestimated the impacts is just looking a few weeks ago when we had G20 finance ministers mm -hmm. meet on the 22nd and 23rd of February. And we were watching for the communique, the statement that came out at the end of that, to see what are they gonna say? What are they gonna signal? And there was a sentence in the communique at the very end of the first paragraph that essentially said, we're monitoring the risks. And that was it. Mm -hmm. um, so there- Not too much there. There wasn't a whole lot there. Apparently the backstory is that there was a lot of, I guess the good news is there was a lot of discussion at the meeting. So it's not the policymakers were unaware of the risks, but there wasn't really a willingness to be too forward leaning in publicly acknowledging the risks and acknowledging the downside. And I guess the rationale for that is to not panic people because right. then you make it self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. But I fear it was interpreted then as complacency and that doesn't really help anyone. Then there was a second bite at the apple in a G7 statement mm -hmm. on March 3rd and that was, I think, kind of heightened, signaled a heightened awareness and attention to the risks. But again, the markets were disappointed because there wasn't any clear definition of what coordinated action would be. Mm -hmm. It was 
that we have the adequate policy tools and we're willing to use them, but without any detail. Now, later that day, you had the Federal Reserve come in in an extraordinary meeting and cut rates 50 basis points. Um, so the Fed, you know, when we look at what institutions are capable of moving very quickly, the Fed is one such institution, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they did recognize the downside risks and have been very aggressive. But now what everyone is waiting for is a similarly aggressive fiscal response. In the U.S., as you know, there was passed an $8 billion package, but to fund the public health needs, that's not right. economic stimulus. That's to, right. to fund the response to the health emergency. And so we're now waiting to see what a fiscal response to address the economic weakness might be. So what, what would a fiscal response look like? This is being hotly debated, hotly contested mm -hmm. right now. And what the White House has apparently made as a centerpiece of this is a payroll tax cut, um, which may on the margins help, but others are quick to point out, well, that only helps if you're actually getting a paycheck. Right. So <laughs> that doesn't necessarily address those that are potentially most vulnerable. So, you know, gig workers or any employees that happen to be furloughed, this isn't going to help them. So this has become in a way kind of a, a political debate about the way assistance should be provided. And I think because you have um, so much pressure actually being applied right now, I, I think we're going to end up landing somewhere that is much more aggressive than just the payroll tax cut. I think people are looking much more specifically at the industries that are being impacted. So Steve mentioned the airline industry, for sure. The energy sector, for a whole set of different reasons that we can talk about, has been quite impacted by the decline in energy prices associated with the economic slowdown. So there are going to be sectors of the economy that are deeply impacted, that are facing financial difficulties, and that will require a big coordinated response to make sure that what is an economic shock doesn't turn into a financial crisis. Do you think people are beginning to see this crisis as one that's comparable to 08, 09? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think when people have asked that question in the past, it's been dismissed in a way because that crisis was one that really started in the financial sector. And there was a big hole in the financial sector and a lot of uncertainty about where the losses from that would ultimately reside. This is one, a shock that's hit the real economy first. The financial sector is actually quite healthy. Banks have more capital buffers than they did at the time of the global financial crisis. Except that we are now seeing the contagion from the real economy to the financial mm -hmm. sector. If there are sectors that can't service their debt, you will start to have losses. And so I think the fear that those losses would then lead investors to just be reticent, this is the uncertainty point again, I think there are some similarities to the global financial crisis. And that's why a policy response that uh, indicates that support will be provided, that we're not going to allow markets to just freeze up, I think is really essential. So is this a question? In 2008, we stimulated the banks, of course. We provided TARP, the you know relief for the banks that were distressed. On a massive scale. On a, on a massive scale. Is there needed a stimulus here to the economic sectors that are getting hurt the most by coronavirus? 
I think there is a need, number one, to acknowledge that that is a vulnerability that needs to be part of the discussion. So when officials are talking about where there are vulnerabilities, I think financial sector vulnerabilities need to be front and center on that list. Then the mechanisms for how you address that issue, this is where it does get complicated because there are going to be some companies that are facing financing difficulties because they might have too much debt or they're not profitable companies. Mm -hmm. How do you differentiate those companies that maybe shouldn't be bailed out from those that otherwise are profitable mm -hmm. and are just getting caught now because markets are frozen? So that's challenging, and I don't want to minimize the challenges of that task, but I think it needs to be approached in that sort of way and definitely part of the conversation when officials are are meeting and discussing how to address this So besides the, the airline industry, what, what else are we looking at? Are we looking at the, the film industry? Are we looking at the restaurant industry? What, what, are we, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure those, but it's really, you know, when we think back all the way two or three weeks ago, four weeks ago when it was, you know, viewed still at that point as a, a China-centric shock. And there the concern were the supply chain connections. So it's not that those uh, risks and uncertainties have all of a sudden gone away. They're still there. So all the electronics, automotive manufacturers, pharmaceuticals, those pharmaceuticals all those sectors are still vulnerable. But we can now add to that list the services sector that you just ran through. So I, I think this needs to be a very kind of broad and inclusive list. Um, and one that the longer this kind of goes on is probably going to get longer. So are we up to that challenge? I mean, are we, are we truly up to that challenge? Do we have the kind of ability to addressing the banks was one thing. It was a pretty focused sector. Th this seems much, much more widespread. Yeah, I, I don't want to underestimate the challenge there. I, I have been reassured by the very responsive nature of the Fed's actions. I take a lot of confidence in that. In addition to the, the rate cut a few days ago, they released a statement along with other U.S. financial regulators encouraging financial institutions to work with those regulators to work with financial institutions and then creditors that are being impacted by the virus. So that was a clear signal that they are communicating, they are aware of the vulnerabilities, and they recognize the need for extraordinary action. So I, I take a great deal of comfort in that. You had the same day as the rate cut, I believe, you had both the World Bank and the IMF come out with their own statements indicating that they are preparing uh, rapid response facilities, recognizing that this is not contained to a single country, but that many countries are going to be impacted. And so the international financial institutions are also mobilizing. So I take a great deal of comfort from that. Where I'm less optimistic, but I think maybe similar to the health response, we could turn a corner, is on the piece of the puzzle that is this global macro coordination. And I mentioned the G7 mm -hmm. and the G20. I think they've been behind, but I think it's clear now that it's imperative that they work together. I don't think we can have a repeat of what we saw over the weekend where the G20 president, Saudi Arabia, 
took a step that actually made the situation much, much worse in oil prices. Oil prices. So, you know, that was troubling on a lot of different fronts, not least the fact that a mechanism that should be minimizing instability actually exacerbated it. I think that that lesson has been learned and hopefully we'll start to see the G7 and the G20 used in a way to actually stabilize the situation. So are we to assume now that the United States is very likely to enter a recession in 2020? You know, recession as defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth, I'm not sure that we're there. I think it definitely is is a possible outcome and we know or can be fairly certain that there are other big economic blocks, Europe, Japan, that may well be in recession already. We know that at least for this quarter and, and likely the next quarter, we're in for a hit. Whether that manifests as technically a recession, I'm not certain, but I think a lot of that depends on the responses that we're talking about now. So the measures to address the uncertainty, the passage of strong fiscal support, I think you can avoid a worst case outcome here and speed the recovery. That's got to be the goal at this point. Can I ask you, Stephanie, we're in the midst of an electoral campaign. It's very toxic politics, but there's still a kind of sense of shared purpose across parties for trying to get this right. It hasn't disappeared. We had the $8.3 billion uh, emergency supplemental go through. Back in 08, when the banking crisis began in the fall, it was in the middle of an electoral cycle. Some of the measures started in that period. I, I just wanted to ask you your memory of that. I mean, the the solutions came later when Obama came into office, but things got set into motion. And Congress was a big part of this too. And we haven't talked about how in this period, how much Congress can play a role in trying to push for solutions that are scaled to what is required. Yeah, I mean, my my memory of that time and, you know, acknowledging that we're in the very early days of this crisis, yeah. but my recollection, and I was at Treasury at the time, is there was a greater sense of bipartisanship. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think very unhelpfully, some have made this into a partisan issue and kind of questioned the validity of the crisis and whether or not there was kind of crisis mongering going on for political advantage. So all of that extremely unhelpful and kind of gave this a partisan flavor mm-hmm. um, at the beginning. I would hope that that is now in the rear view and that we can move on to a recognition that no, we are actually facing first and foremost a health crisis, right? The economic Mm -hmm. stuff is important, but secondary too. We're first and foremost in a health crisis and that's what needs to be addressed. And then recognize there is gonna be an economic fallout from this and that is not a Republican fallout or a Democratic fallout. That is something that the nation and, and frankly the globe will be facing and so I, Maybe it's my optimistic nature. I'm hopeful that we can get past kind of a partisan lens on this and get to where we recognize on a bipartisan basis the need for um, significant fiscal action. Now, the Business Roundtable just formed a COVID group to be a fairly high-level group. Is that the sort of thing that could be quite useful in terms of getting leadership from within our business community at giving them voice and you know giving them a mission of really trying to come forward. I I mean I think so and and Steve you might be closer to this but my impression because 
the official response was fairly slow. So you've actually seen the private sector has kind of been first to move as far as putting in place mm. policies for their own employees, mm -hmm. contingency planning for their own operations. Um, and so, you know, we have a long history in this country of looking to the private sector for solutions. So having that sort of mechanism that would serve as a way to advise government officials on, on solutions, I think, is, is a positive development. Finally, I just want to ask you all, Americans currently are rushing to the stores and emptying the shelves of supplies. Is this something that's good for the economy, bad for the economy? Is it, you know, is this what we're supposed to be doing? To some degree, yes. You know, we're appealing to people to stay calm and not panic. We're appealing to people to prepare themselves for some voluntary isolation or social distancing that we're entering a period of disruption and turbulence in which lowering infection rates, not eliminating in transmission, but lowering transmission, will be dependent on individuals kind of taking the, the responsibility and agency for this, not just in washing their hands, but in lowering their, their social interactions, but also stockpiling stuff so that they're not going out to restaurants. They're not in total isolation, but they're they're beginning to limit their social interactions, and part of limiting social interactions is going to the store less frequently and having the capacity to, to care for yourself if it's making sure you've got enough stock of paper products and you've got enough stock of basic in your larder, you've got enough elements to feed your family. I think that's the logic of this, and um, the fact that the, the shelves are empty is a, an indicator of fear, but it's also an indicator of people are getting the logic that they're preparing themselves for the possibility of a slowdown and some interruptions in their life patterns. And that is what they will need to do as part of a broader effort to try and bring the transmission down. I would ask Stephanie the same question, but she already left to go to the store. <laughs> but I'm not hoarding. I'm not hoarding. What Steve said makes absolute sense to me. And then the one kind of asterisk I would put next to it is in the case of things like pharmaceuticals, yeah. prescription drugs, right. you know, people that are not in need of those things now should not be hoarding those yeah. things because there will be people that do. They really need, need them. And people, I mean, that's a very good point. Some of the advice that's coming from CDC and from elsewhere is saying to people who have serious medical needs to go to their doctor or pharmacist and have have an extra month of of supply for themselves if they have chronic disorder. I mean, the one thing that we've seen happen in, in China and in the new Wuhan, which is how they're referring now to Italy or in Europe, as Europe has become the Wuhan now as the, as the epicenter, is that as health systems get disrupted and as the caring for those in, in extreme condition as a result of coronavirus, it disrupts all sorts of other very important health services. So thinking ahead, if there's things you can do to mitigate those risks on your own in terms of your medicine cabinet, that not, not to hoard, but just to sort of think ahead a little bit. Thanks, both of you, for being here and for all this great information. Uh, we'll all surely be paying a lot of attention to your words in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. Thank you.